0: Welcome to our first edition of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. First of all, thank you for joining me on what I hope will be a very exciting, interesting, and most importantly, entertaining ride. Uh, For as long as this podcast exists, my commitment to you is to be fun, interesting, and relevant. Uh, Not sure what order is going to be. But uh, we're going to be talking about all sorts of legal issues. And we'll also be talking with lots of interesting people. Some will be lawyers and some will not. But all of them will be talking about some way in which their life has intersected with the laws of this country and the law in general. And I will be talking about things that are relevant at the time of the recording. I cannot promise that if you're listening to this months or years later they'll still be relevant but uh, i'm hoping that you will have as much fun as i know i'm already having and uh, just to let you know who i am it's not just a passing interest in the law Uh, i'm a attorney i did go to law school i passed uh, i've been allowed to practice in three of our 50 states and i currently practice law I've noticed that there's a trend in this country, while we've always been interested in the law and been a very uh, law-minded group of people in this country, there's a lot of focus on the rights that we have, not always on the rights that other people have. Also, not always on the responsibilities that we have. And with that, I'm gonna just bring your attention to what's happened recently Which is that the President of the United States at this moment uh, tweeted something, a statement, saying uh, that he condoned violence in the face of rioting in Minnesota. And without getting too deep into it, uh, his statement was then addressed by Twitter. Now, for those of you who don't know what Twitter is, Twitter is A type of social media and what's interesting is that people who support this president immediately want to focus the argument in terms of is Twitter a platform or a publication which is a very interesting legal argument and could be talked about but that bringing yourself to that argument misses an incredibly important point Uh, And it really is a fake out by those people, because the real issue is, um, is there a First Amendment right to incite violence on Twitter? Uh, The reality is, the First Amendment uh, most people refer to, meaning the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, and uh, the First Amendment, which is the the first 10 amendments are known as the Bill of Rights, and you probably know that if you went to high school. But the First Amendment, among other things, or as lawyers say, inter alia, um, provides for freedom of the press and freedom of speech. And that's all well and good, but what it, that's not exactly what the Constitution and the amendments say. What it really says is that government cannot restrict your right to free speech however twitter brace yourselves is not a form of government it's not a part of the government of the united states so a good example of this would be if i had Mao's little red book and i walked into the middle of mcdonald's and i started screaming about how communism was really important Uh, The people who run that McDonald's could reasonably have me leave McDonald's because they're not the government. I'm free to talk about Mao Zedong and the Little Red Book outside in the public square, literally in the public square, in the privacy of my home, but not in the McDonald's, which is not government. It's private property. And Twitter is a corporate entity. All you need to do is look it up. You can look up either Twitter or go to the United States Constitution and see which one of the articles governs Twitter. Article 1 being Congress, Article 2 being the executive branch presidency, Article 3 being the judicial. There is no Twitter article. Any other conversation about an issue of whether people can say inflammatory things on Twitter is irrelevant because it's not a First Amendment protected right. So, just thought we would get that out of the way. Now we're gonna end up talking with Ed Gaffney. Ed is a graduate of uh, Dartmouth and Northeastern Law School and is also a writer of several published legal thrillers. Um, and was nominated for an Edgar Award for one of those novels. He happens to be a close personal friend of mine, so he was probably the easiest get, so he is my first uh, guest on this show. I'm very excited that he had time to talk to me because he is very busy, um, especially representing people right now uh, who are stuck in prison and dealing with the current COVID pandemic. Um, he has a tremendous amount of compassion and intelligence, and he uses them both to represent people. I think you'll find him interesting. <laughs> I certainly do. So let's listen to my conversation with criminal defense attorney and legal thriller writer, and Edgar ward Ted edgar Your first job as a lawyer was in Phoenix, right?
1: yes, as a lawyer right i got i we Susan and I got married in uh, 1983. we moved to Phoenix, kind of throwing darts at a map. we wanted to just try a different part of the country other than the northeast, so we moved to Phoenix um, I got a job, and when I went to law school here's another you know i I know everything about what i 'm going to do. my future is completely planned out in advance, no problem I, <laughs> I knew when I went to to in, when I was in law school, I would never do securities law, I would never do divorces, and I would never do criminal law. Well, my first job was as a securities lawyer for a solo practitioner. Now, that, that sentence, <laughs> for anybody who's done security law, does not make any sense, but that's the way it was. In 1993, 1983, when I started, um, I, I stumbled into a job with, uh, with an attorney named Steve Meadow in uh, Arizona in Phoenix, and I learned about securities law. And we did a lot of little uh, penny stock uh, IPOs, and, and private placements, and rule Ds, and for people who know securities law, that kind of stuff.
0: Which just so a- people, people who don't know an IPO is an initial public offering, which means taking a company public, right? Rather than the company just being financed by a few people, either the family, or the guy, or gal who runs it you're offering out to the world, buy stock in my company. Is that the short version?
1: That's the short version.
0: And shockingly, there's a lot of regulation about that because uh, at least in those days, the government wanted to protect the public from people who might not be trustworthy in raising money. Is that accurate?
1: That's exactly right. And they were trying to protect against the abuses that, You know, specifically, this this body of law and regulation came up uh, after the crash in nineteen twenty nine or twenty-nine, right? The 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 terrible crash and that that led to the Great Depression, um, where people were buying and selling stock based on complete garbage, no word of mouth, you know, crazy crazy uh, claims of uh, of uh, future earnings, et cetera, et cetera. So now you have to be very very careful about how you present these kind of opportunities investment opportunities and my job was to help um, make sure that the people that were the, the companies that were doing this were doing it in accordance with those regulations so we had to watch very carefully how the any offering prospectus was written um, any offering memorandum depending on the, the type of investment that was uh, that was being offered, I mean, I was out of there in uh, eighty five back mm-hmm. to New York to work for my father in the construction business for a couple, for almost well at least five seven years
0: what i What I find interesting is to fast forward for a variety of personal reasons which you don 't need to reveal to people. You ultimately ended up becoming a criminal defense attorney and one who specializes in appellate law, correct
1: exactly exactly
0: and and that is about as far a departure from securities law as i can think of it's a pretty big
1: it's a pretty big leap <laughs> what happened was i got i got um we we moved to boston in 92 and um and i started uh working on uh, on my own jailhouse lawyer uh, and he recognized that the quality of my writing was was uh, something that he thought would work well in, in uh, criminal appeals, and he connected me with the um, the Massachusetts uh, Committee for Public Counsel Services, uh, and suggested that I get in touch with them and, and show them a, a writing sample and see if they were interested and if I were interested in uh, doing that kind of work. And it it was a great uh, it was a great recommendation. We hit it off right off the bat, and I was. My first case, I don't know if you know this, Eric, my first case, I ended up in the, fir- in the highest court of the state.
0: <laughs> you were in the first district or the circuit? No, not,
1: not in the first, in the Supreme Judicial Court. Oh, I, wow. I, won, I won my first appeal, which wow. got jacked right up to the highest court where they slapped me down. But it was very, you know, it was very exciting. And it was, a, you know, a, a, a cool validation. You know, you're, you're in the right, we're in the right ball game here. You know, you're, you know, winning your first appeal was something.
0: But I am always amazed at people asking, how can you do that kind of work? When people bring a certain level of judgment to it. Uh,
1: when I got started doing this, it was the early, early 90s. Um, that was just about when DNA was starting to, you know, have an effect on, on, our, on our work. Since then, it has become tragically clear that we have some major Major problems with a system that we are, understandably, really proud of. The criminal justice system, in certain aspects, is really pretty good, given the fact that we as humans are are flawed creatures. But uh, especially with respect to race, oh my God, um, we have messed this up tragically it's way too often, and there are there are way too many people who are innocent. Who have been convicted and DNA has helped exonerate hundreds, literally hundreds of them. Just that alone helps me explain to anybody uh, the importance of being non judgmental, especially in my role. My job is not to judge people, it's to judge the process by which these
0: people were convicted. You know, it's, it's awesome that you bring up DNA, just as one example. Um, as you may know, uh, one of my law professors was Barry Scheck, And Barry Scheck is very famous for number one, creating the Innocence Project uh, here in New York City. Um, I think he created it. He certainly has been the face of it for a long time. And people can look up the Innocence Project on their own, but uh, th- it's very well known for using DNA that is the science of you know, using that particular science of genetic material to identify whether, to rule out certain people being involved in a crime. And they have quite the positive record of overturning convictions where it's clear from science, not just conjecture or magic, but actual science showing there's no way this particular person could have committed that crime. Right. Um, Unfortunately, he's also famous for being one of the team of defense attorneys for O.J. Simpson. You can look at the case and look at what he did and make your own determinations. But I think there's no question that his work has been extremely valuable. We all, and not just lawyers, everybody needs to be vigilant about this process
1: because it's so easy for us to, uh, to make assumptions based on the small bit of information we receive from the media about anything, usually, frankly, because it's, it's, it's particularly enticing for media to put the most explosive and, and you know, uh, uh, dramatic uh, bits of evidence or not evidence, but information out into the public. So you see somebody who, who appears to have all of the characteristics that you would think... Would, you know would line up with a guilty person, and of course they're guilty what is this you know lawyer screaming about and crying about and
0: right and the chemistry those... lab is just a formality for, for right. many people we
1: know we know what they do
0: we know what they do right but the people... thing, right, but what people don't know is there are elements to drug crimes, and when I say elements, that means there are certain things that need to be present that Uh, basically are like a math equation to determine whether someone is guilty or not. And usually drug crimes are very simple when it comes to elements. Let's say it's possession of cocaine. Well, they have to actually have it or it has to be near them. And I don't want to get lost in that. The substance has to be cocaine. It can't just be white powder that everybody thinks is cocaine. And that's where the drug lab comes in. And as you were saying, this particular chemist, Andy Dukin, who actually pled guilty, if I'm not mistaken, to a variety of crimes, basically would just look at a powder and go, that's cocaine to me. And she literally signed twice as many of those drug certifications as anyone else. And people who ran the state's, you know, the attorney general, the state police, whatever, Nobody really cared because stuff was getting done and people were getting convicted. And I urge people to look at this documentary. It's a four part documentary because she, this woman, this chemist lied about in fact, what she, uh, what her credentials were. And then the other chemist, instead of just testing the drugs also ingested the drugs. She smoked crack at work. And in one part, I'm sorry folks, spoiler alert. She took LSD at the beginning of her day and then proceeded to do drug testing, which I'm, I will not talk about any drug use of my own, but I'll say this. I think if you are on an acid trip, the results of your drug testing should be reviewed by somebody else. I just, I'm gonna throw that out there. Just, a, just an observation, just a suggestion. What, what I find interesting about you, Ed, because there's a lot of people that do what we do. We, you know, There's a lot of criminal defense attorneys of uh, various uh, abilities, whatnot. You've had many key cases go all the way up to the Supreme Judicial Court. I'm not going to name them because nobody's going to care, really. They can look you up if they want. I, I know them. But an interesting second, another chapter of your life has been that of a writer of legal thrillers you hear a lot of people go, oh, someday I'd like to write a book, you know, and that's <laughs> a fascinating statement for authors to hear. But the reality is you have had, how many books were published at Bantam? I believe.
1: Bantam published four.
0: And then you've self-published a couple as well?
1: I self-published um, a fifth. I don't know if I did two. Did I do two? I think I just, okay. I just, I just did White Man Woke, I think.
0: Okay. And you... Just so people know, and I already probably said this, but so you hear it, uh, we're nominated for an Edgar. Can you tell people what an Edgar Award is? <laughs> sure, that is.
1: You mystery. like the way? By the way, that was
0: my classic. Uh, that's my radio personality thing. Like, <laughs> why do you tell the audience what an Edgar is?
1: That is the Mystery Writers of America Award for the best book in you know the category of that of that year. That was in two thousand and nine, I think. For a book called Enemy Combatant, um, but I got to write books because um, because of the success of my my wife Suzanne Brockman, who who was um, is a, a, you know a multi multi uh, award winning. Uh, I
0: mean, let me just cover. say it: Su- Suzanne Brockman is a New York Times bestselling author many times over, who has been published with several major publishers and has had a career starting out with like small romance all the way through to major publishers like valentine for in excess of 20 years correct
1: yeah yeah, yeah. She, she's uh she's actually where are we 1920 yeah i mean 2020 we're 20 plus
0: yeah feels like feels like 1920 yeah. <laughs> <Closing> <laughs> but it's on really th- 2020 yeah.
1: 2020 closing in on 30 years and and you know uh, approaching 60 books um but in the early 2000s. In fact, I got the idea for the book that I, that I started writing, the, for the first book I wrote, which was called Premeditated Murder. That, that came to me um, in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, there, were some, uh, there was some rhetoric being, disc- uh, being bandied about by the politicians of the day. And, uh, and it, got to me, it got me thinking about the, that language in the context of, uh, of murder trials. And uh, I don't want to go into it too much. If people are interested in uh, in reading, well, we don't
0: have to go into the book. But I'm curious about you know, as attorneys, or you specifically as an attorney, and the rhetoric of politicians. It seems like this is just a recurring theme in our history. I, you you know, that's another part of our lives that's very interesting. I, I know that you and I, and especially Sue's, were active in the LGBTQ equality movement, specifically in marriage equality, starting in Massachusetts. And then, um, you know, the war against people of color and others uh, is being waged on the streets by people with badges and guns. And I'm, I'm not saying all of them, everybody calm down, but I think it's, you, you can speak to this too, the number of people of color who are in prisons is in, I'm gonna go crazy here and say this, they're not more likely to commit crimes than anybody else. So it's, I just find it fascinating that, well, first of all, I just read something that we incarcerate more people than any other nation in the world.
1: I don't know if that's per capita. I think that's
0: per capita too. It's It's, it's, certainly per capita. We may be number one in the world,
1: you know, just in raw numbers, but we we are number one. You know, if anybody had any doubt about whether we're the best country in the world, we're the best at incarcerating our own population. That's do
0: you sure. do you think that America is just a land full of criminals, or do you think it's <laughs> something else?
1: No, no. I actually was thinking about um, fairness recently. Um, I, I knew that we were going to be talking, and I and i was I was thinking about this I, I I actually just recently had a conversation with four no three of my friends from junior high school and high school and uh and we you know we all went to, to different different paths and and we were just talking about lots of things and sharing about how lucky we were and um and i and for some reason I got to thinking about how it was when we were kids and what we were like when we were kids. And that brought me to the fact that that I, I'm the oldest of eight kids. So I grew up in a big, big household. And, and that, you know, my brain was obviously just free associating. And I was starting to think about fairness and I was thinking about fairness because that's kind of at the root of justice um, in the American jurisprudence system, theoretically.
0: Um, (laughs) I was going to say it's supposed to be.
1: And, If you need to, if you need a a reminder about what's fair, just ask a kid, just ask a kid. They all know instinctively, we all know what's fair and what's not fair. A little kid sitting in a room full of other little kids and sees one particular kid get something that everybody else doesn't get. They're like, that's not fair. Like we all should have that. Or they're the only one that doesn't get it. That's not fair, why can't I?
0: Dude, you know, you're sounding like a communist. <laughs> it's outrageous. <laughs> this concept of fairness—just because yeah. you're a human being—that we're entitled to share things. Uh, Ed, well, you're a dangerous. I can't believe I put you on this I'm, podcast. I'm
1: gonna go. I'm gonna go beyond. I'm gonna get you really worked up. No, maybe uh, I won't get you worked up. Maybe I get your listeners worked up. But I, I believe that it's really, really. Oh man, it's so attractive. It's like catnip for politicians to do what you were describing earlier, to to castigate some group of people. And the reason I think, I think that this is just a a wiring problem because we are, (laughs) we may perceive ourselves to be, you know, at at the top in the evolutionary pyramid and that's fine, but it doesn't mean that we do not have within us some baser instincts which, some of us, I think, aren't that great at managing. And those instincts include identifying what team you're on and who the bad guys are, the other team. And when that is activated, and I think there are people who are really susceptible to the activation of that, you end up with potentially some extremely dangerous situations. So if all of the so-and-so are, you know, those people are the problem. The Jews in Nazi Germany, the Mexicans and all of the rapists pouring over the Southern border, the, the black people who murder each other on the streets of Chicago, Who whoever, whatever group you, you identify in this way, it's very, very attractive for a politician to the Muslims, the Muslims, the Muslims yeah. did 9-11. Now, all the Muslims are a problem, and then then when our, when our population begins to uh, assimilate this garbage um, and put it into practice, that's when lawyers like you and me end up in courtrooms saying that's not fair the, right. the, the, the assumptions you're making are not fair, and the and the result of the assumptions you're making end up putting
0: more of these kinds of people in prisons, for example. Right, right, and I, I think it's, I think that it's times like these that I'm especially proud to be an attorney because we are, you know, I, was, I was re-watching Band of Brothers. We are the airborne, we're beyond the front line, we're in many ways behind enemy lines. And for we're those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, HBO did a 10 part series about Easy Company, these guys from 101st Airborne uh, in World War II. And it's an amazing, it's not a documentary, it's a drama, it's brilliantly done. And um, I feel like people like us who go into courtrooms, you know, we're behind the enemy lines in a sense, um, because what people sometimes forget is The only person, once you're accused of a crime, the only person who definitely is on your side is your attorney. The prosecution is an arm of the government. The judge is supposed to be impartial. I'm not saying they're not, but they are also part of the government. The jury comes in. The process of a jury trial is to ensure that these people will be impartial and fair. But when you're sitting, At the defense table, standing accused of a crime, no matter how much people are trying to be fair, there is this sense of many people, well, what did that person do that had them end up in that chair? So, you know, and and there are other little things that you and I know most people don't think about, which is the prosecution always starts the case. They go first and they go last at the very end. They bookend the trial. They have at their disposal the entire police force, whether it's the local police or state police, the defense has very little. Um, What the defense might be able to do is ask a court for money to hire an investigator or a medical professional, but they have to ask, and it's not guaranteed that they'll get it. So I think that you and I really have more of a sense of what happens when the rubber meets the road truly, when it comes to constitutional rights, things like the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment. And you know what, folks, just look it up if you don't know what those are. Or we'll talk about them in another podcast. Especially with respect to the people that we defend, because we're
1: court-appointed attorneys. So the people that we we defend, as, as, as you were describing, they're the people that don't have money to hire a private investigator or to hire a medical expert. So we have to ask the court for funds. Rich defendants... Oh, like Bill hire, Cosby
0: or... Right,
1: um, or the, Right. You know, they can hire teams of the best lawyers. They can hire all the experts in the world. Um, and then sometimes the, the, actually the balance gets shifted um, in the other direction.
0: I want to say Harvey Weinstein too, in case people are like, hey, how come he never mentions a Jew? Harvey <laughs> Weinstein, okay? Bearish your Jew for today. A bad Jew. I'll just throw it <laughs> out there. Uh, I'm not saying that... I don't know what I'm saying. Bad juice sounds like a very uh, innocuous punk band. That's not what it is. I'm talking about Mr. Weinstein, who couldn't keep his hands to himself. It was proven in a court of law. This is not my accusation. Correct. Okay, good. I don't want to get sued in my first podcast. And I don't want to. I don't want to leave anyone with
1: the impression that Eric and I think that everyone we defend is factually innocent. It's. It's just not. It's just not true. Um, and for the most part police are good at their jobs. And that's one of the reasons that juries will look at a defendant. It's very hard. They're instructed not to, but they'll look at a defendant as like, you must've done something. (laughs) You got arrested, you got charged. You must've done something. However, the problem is the, the among the problems are if you are black, if you are a person of color, if you are a Muslim, if you are one of the members of these parts of society, that have been identified as a problem, have been identified as more inclined to be, uh, to commit crimes, more violent. Those those messages are everywhere in our society. And so the jury has that as well. So it's not just, you must've done something because the police arrested you. It's, you must've done something because you're a young black kid. You must have done something because your name doesn't sound like the names of my neighbors.
0: Right. Have... And yeah, I, I want to I be clear uh, in case anyone got a false impression. You know, you and I mentioned a couple of chemists who were terrible at what they, at their jobs. There are thousands, tens of thousands, I don't know the number of uh, police officers across this country who put their life on the line every day and are exceptional. Are, are fair are diligent um and they come fr- from all backgrounds all races all religions you know i i live in brooklyn and i see such a wide variety of people in every aspect of life including the new york police department so i, I want to be clear that it's not i'm i i don't think you're saying it i'm not saying that the police are the problem no. or, uh, um I mean, occasionally they are, but, you know, occasionally lawyers are a problem, too. Right. You know, there are lawyers making headlines that are unfortunate, you know. Not good ones. Not good ones. Michael Cohen is at home now uh, on some kind of release. Uh, not a good lawyer, I would argue.
1: Not a, not a great citizen?
0: No, maybe not even a nice guy. Certainly for a while when you listen to the things he said on the telephone to people. And I want to transition to that, actually, which is something that's very timely, you know, uh, COVID has impacted, this pandemic has impacted every aspect of life. And what people don't think about is that there's a population, as we said, a lot of people in prison, and you can't social distance in almost every prison in the United States. And we are not being told the actual numbers of people who are infected, who are sick and who are actually dying in prisons um, as a result of the current pandemic. And I know that I actually am handling some matters like this and you are, can you tell me, are you as an attorney, what are you doing about that?
1: Gee, I I don't remember precisely when it was, maybe it was late March. Um, I, uh, I wrote a letter to the people that I was representing, because I'm I'm a post-conviction attorney. So everybody I represent is in prison, or most, most people that I represent are, are in prison. Um, and uh, so I wrote a letter to them asking them if they were particularly susceptible to the to the virus. Did they have diabetes? Were they obese? Were they, you know, did they have asthma, that kind of thing. And uh, a handful of them got back to me, and uh, I contacted my superiors, and it turns out that, um, that there, uh, there are conditions in prisons that are absolutely uh, just perfect for the transmission of this disease. Um, I actually have a client who, who survived the disease, um, but in the process of this, over the course of three weeks, he lost 65 pounds. Um, he, Whoa.
0: Suffered, yeah, he suffered. even I who consider myself a little heavy would not want to lose 65 pounds.
1: I mean, this guy was obese, but sixty-five you would be pounds dead. For anybody, <laughs> I would be dead. Yeah. I mean, this, this guy, uh, he he said his fever ran, his temperature ran from 101 to 106. And, um, and when he walked down the hall, uh, to just go to the bathroom, it was, you know, he, he barely could make it he was gasping for breath by the end of this walk. He survived it. But there there are others um, that are in this, not not necessarily infected yet, but they're in this particular institution um, where over 20% of the people, uh, the inmates, are are positive. Um, And there's just no way to, you know, keep everybody, everybody safe. The, The disease is there. It's running rampant. So I've there are people up.
0: though there are people I, I'm sorry I'm interrupting you, but sure. there are people out there, um probably not people who listen to this, but there might be, who think, well, you know what, you're in prison, you did something bad, right. um, you get sick, that's on you, buddy, yeah, you or get, gal yeah. yeah, and what's your response to that?
1: Well, there's two things not not every punishment is the death penalty uh, <laughs>
0: That's a very good point. <laughs> We just, you know, that's just not what we do in this country. Right. So if you're in prison because you, of your third drunk driving charge, nobody, you never hurt anybody, but you got pulled over yet again, third drunk driving charge, and you're doing, let's say you do a year in the lowest level in Massachusetts, which would be a house of corrections, a county prison type facility. Jail. Um, you know, jail. Um, it's right, technically it's not a prison, a county jail and you're supposed to do it for a year, um, we, you and I, and I think a lot of people would agree, drunk driving should not result in the death penalty. Just now, as an example.
1: Of, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't believe in the death penalty in general, but, but right. I don't think anybody believes in the death penalty for drunk driving or you know, p- petty larceny, getting in a bar fight. You know, I mean, these, there's a lot of people who are serving time you know, for p- possession of marijuana. There are a lot of people who are doing time for, for crimes that, that, you know, no one believes should, you know, carry a death penalty. Um, And, and I mean, this is just whatever your particular, (laughs) you know, your particular attitude is toward people who are incarcerated. Oh, well, you committed a crime. So what do you get? You get what you get. That's not the way our society works. You don't get to make that call. We get to make that call because it's a democracy. And we've already made that call because we have an an amendment to the Constitution. It's the Eighth Amendment, which says that we don't put people into situations. We do not punish them with cruel and unusual punishment. And I argue, and I am arguing, I'm in the process of arguing, that when you put somebody into a prison uh, that has 20% of the population sick with a disease that could kill you, um, that's cruel and unusual. And so what you know, else how, I, you I, know yes. how I know that? Because we've closed, we've closed our country. <laughs> you know, we, we, don't, we don't tolerate this level of risk, but we're perfectly willing to let inmates tolerate that level of risk. It, worse, than, worse than, you know, normal just existence. They, these people have to live in places where they can't stay six feet away from each other.
0: It's Was it ju- Martin Luther King who said you can judge a society by its prisons, or Gandhi, or like somebody? Now I got to look that up while I'm talking to you. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, it, and that's an extension of another quote: "You can judge a society by the by the way in which the least powerful are treated," or something like that. Um, sounds yeah, I, like a Gandhi type thing.
0: <laughs> I, I you know, I hate to tell the Christian right that, you know, their buddy that dark. Jew, who who did not believe in guns because they hadn't been invented and uh and spent a lot of time that missing time uh where he's gone he was probably studying with a buddha in india but we'll leave all of that alone for the moment um what so uh, now okay we've talked about the problem uh what what are you and what are other attorneys doing? Are you literally getting these people to just like, they're going to open the doors and let people out? I know that's not true. I'm leading you. It's called leading the witness. What is it that you and other attorneys are asking to be done for these people who are at risk of getting sick in these incredibly cramped, uh, illness-filled places? Well, there's uh, actually, it's kind of
1: interesting. There's two, uh, there's two answers to that. One is that our hands are tied. We don't have a lot of... We we have we have zero power. This is just asking asking the court for help. Yes, one uh, one quote unquote solution is to just release this person. Um, actually, the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court issued a ruling back about ten years ago when California had a uh, budget crisis and they couldn't they just couldn't manage their prisons and they were brutally overcrowded. And the, the, the Supreme Court gave them years to kind of build their way out of it, you know, increase uh, production of facilities and, and, and they couldn't do it. And, it, and it finally, the Supreme Court said, okay, listen, we're just gonna say, here's the number. You can't have it any more than this number of people incarcerated. You gotta let people go. And they had to go about the process of picking who they were gonna just release because they just couldn't manage it. Um, but that's a very extreme, that's a very extreme situation. Now, the cases I'm doing are just one person at a time. Here's my guy. He's got diabetes. He's overweight. He's in this prison where there's a, an outbreak. We need to do something for him. So my suggestion is release him under all kinds of you know, supervisory conditions. Right. I
0: mean, I, I'm sorry, but I, because I know about this, there's a lot of different things where they have to have a home plan, right? Where you have to tell the court, well... They're gonna be in this specific place. They're gonna be, in a sense, it's early parole. They're gonna get paroled out early, but they're still gonna be monitored and supervised. So they're not just let out willy nilly with no restrictions, correct?
1: Right, and of course the court doesn't have to let anybody out. I mean, they, right. they make decisions based on, is this person a risk to flee? Is this person a risk uh, of violence in the community? And and how you know how much more time is on this sentence? Um, You know, what kind of, you know, do we put a GPS on this person? Do we make them report? You know, do, do we have house arrest situations? I mean, there's a whole lot of things that are, a whole lot of things that are available to the courts. And frankly, included, now that's just, that's the, that's the Hail Mary. That's the last ditch effort. There are laws, I don't know if you know this, Eric, but there are laws in Massachusetts that were passed specifically in case of a disease outbreak at a prison designed to enable superintendents of uh, the the Department of Correction or wardens or commissioners or whatever, people who are in charge of prisoners to incarcerate them elsewhere.
0: Well, Ed, first of all, let me say, of course I know I'm a lawyer, I know everything. How dare you? (laughs) Secondly, I just wanted to sidetrack because we're going to be running out of time i wanted to say i recently read a law review article from notre dame law school i believe it was and i'll make that available to any of my listeners um anyone who wants to see that i can send it to you just shoot me an email uh for the email of this podcast but um it basically inquires um what is the big deal about violent offenders and releasing them would that be a problem they did a study to see how often violent offenders are recidivists—that That is, how often do they do violence again, or was this a very specific time, a very specific place, a very specific action against a very specific person? And I think it's fascinating. We're all running around with our prejudices, assuming if somebody commits a violent crime, and believe me, I'm not a fan of violent crime, but if, if someone commits at once, that's just what they're gonna do all the time as soon as they get out. And I think you, we all, if we check our gut, we know there are some people who are just violent and it is better to keep them away from the rest of us. But I think that a lot of times we see violence as the result of specific situations and wouldn't be repeated. And I think this Law Review article is fascinating. It's being used quite honestly as part of support supportive emotion for uh, for an early parole. And uh, I think that people should one of the cool things, unfortunately I know there's a horrible disease and a horrible time on many fronts, but we really have an opportunity to reexamine some very foundational aspects of our society. And what is it we're doing and why are we doing it? You know, why do we have so many people, so many people incarcerated? Is this really helping? Is this the best way to approach things? And can't we save, you know, you can appeal to people where money is their whole, that's their scorecard. You can say what a miserable failure financially the prison systems are. And, you know, there are people trying to make money from private prisons. That's a whole other podcast. Maybe I'll have you back for that and how that is just nauseating to me, but I assume to you and several other people. But I think that, you know, this whole notion that when people lose their job, they lose their health coverage. That's not what we're talking about today. But just that's another foundational aspect of our culture here in America that's not shared across the world. You know, I have lots of friends in all over the world that if they lose their job, they don't have to worry if they get sick. Will they have to? How are they gonna afford going to the hospital? You know, my British, German, Swiss friends, they are all they're covered. So I just wanna wrap this up with saying that I think that you, you know, the theme for this, I think in many ways, this conversation is multiple chapters. You know, you started out thinking you were gonna help Native Americans. You became a corporate lawyer in the smallest corporate firm ever. Um, And then you became an award nominated author, published by a national publisher uh, multiple times and now you're a very well-regarded appellate criminal attorney. What's next for Ed Gaffney? Wow, that Uh-oh. was just so awful. <laughs> what, what, what is next for Ed Gaffney? Do you have oh, any projects or anything that's going on?
1: Yeah, yeah, th- this, is, this is fun. I'm not, I'm not ending my uh, criminal appeals chapter, but I, am, <laughs> I have been over the past handful of years working with my son, Jason Gaffney, Jason T. Gaffney, um, who is an, himself an award-winning um, producer uh, and writer and director of um, LGBTQ um, movies, features. And, um, and he actually recently sold a series uh, to a little streaming service called Deku D-E-K-K-O-O.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I'm definitely going to ask him to be on. Do you think he'll be a tough get-
1: I think Jason would. I think he'd be willing. I think he'd be willing. Anyway, Jason and I have written um, written together, and I've helped uh, crew some of his projects, and we co-wrote a a, a series that Deku picked up, uh, in part called Marriage of Inconvenience, um, which was, I mean, I think we were about a week, maybe two weeks out from uh, from filming, and we got we got hit by the pandemic.
0: Oh, man. Well, I I look forward to uh, talking about that more. Maybe another time with you or certainly with Jason. Ed Gaffney, thank you so much for being on. Is that really legal? I really appreciate your time. So that's it. That is the first interview, the first podcast episode of Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I want to, again, thank Ed Gaffney. Um, We are in conversations right now with a possible sponsor. I'm very excited, especially because it's food. And I think if you know me, and you'll get to know me, I'm a big fan of food. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on this first episode. Again, if you want to follow us on Twitter or on Facebook, please look for us at Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Bye-bye.